I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. I came to Susan Frankel's book, um, The Proper Way, which is learning that the author is someone to pay attention to. Um, I've been watching ecological restoration for a while and doing some while I can. And she uh, wrote a book a couple years ago called American Chestnut, The Birth, Life, and Death, sorry, Life, Death, and Rebirth of a Perfect Tree. And I knew that if she wrote anything else, I wanted to read it. So just last year, she came out with this book, Plastic, A Toxic Love Story. And I read it with great pleasure. I noticed our previous speaker, Charles C. Mann, um, who's a really diligent guy. He read the speaker before him, uh, Ed Wilson's uh, Social Conquest of Earth, and he read the speaker after him, his book about plastic. And he was impressed. And uh, So you scientific journalists are helping each other along. But I realized that there's a time dimension to plastic that is at the heart of its peculiarities. And Susan Frankel has really nailed that in the book. And I think that anything that calls itself the Long Now Foundation uh, should have a pretty thorough disquisition and body of thought around a material like plastic. And here she is, Susan Frankel. Well, thanks, Stuart, and thank you, everyone, for coming. Um, so, as you see here, <clears throat> I have a slide of the Titanic. What, you may ask, does the Titanic have to do with plastic? Um, and the answer is that uh, when the first salvage crew discovered the ship, which went down about 100 years ago, exactly 100 years ago, rather, um, they found a treasure trove of t early 20th century life. They found, uh, you know, gold jewelry. They found uh, leather goods. They found silver pocket watches. There was one thing they didn't find, which was striking to one of the crew members. Uh, he later told reporters, there was nothing on the ship that was plastic. Not a single thing. Um, and that's kind of interesting. That was only 100 years ago. And yet, you know, any modern ship today that went down, it would be a very different story. It would not only be made of plastic, but of course it would be, uh, you know, filled with plastic things. In some ways, you know, the Titanic is one of the major metaphors of modern life, and plastic too has become a major metaphor of our time, but not just a metaphor. It's also a medium of modern life. <clears throat> it touches pretty much every aspect of our lives today, from clothes to cars, homes to hospitals, uh, toys to technology. It's all plastic. Now, I kind of knew this when I started writing my book on plastic, but I didn't really appreciate uh, that, um, and I didn't really understand that as much until I decided to do a little thought experiment. And I thought, okay, I'm going to spend a day not touching anything plastic. It seemed like a great idea. Um, until the appointed morning when I got up and sort of stumbled into the bathroom and looked down and there was my plastic toilet seat. <clears throat> there was my plastic sink. There was my plastic toothbrush. This wasn't going to work very well. So I decided instead that I was going to spend the day um, writing down 
everything that I touched that was plastic. Now, this is, not, this is more than that list. But, you know, as you can see, it's kind of an impossible uh, amount of stuff. And um, uh, I realized, you know, just how thoroughly plastic our lives were. And in some ways, what my book became was an effort to a- answer two pretty basic questions. One is, how do we get to a place where plastic is so utterly pervasive in our lives? And then the second is, what does that mean for our lives? There are a lot of ways to tell this kind of story of our kind of gradual plasticization. But what really struck me, and to be honest, uh, it didn't really hit me until I was pretty much done with the book, was that one way to tell the story and think about the story is as a long um, love affair that had gone wrong. Um, You know, uh, we started off utterly enthralled with plastics, even if we didn't understand very much with them. They became very much a part of our lives. We became somewhat disenchanted. And here we are today, pretty disenchanted, still not really understanding plastics very well. Um, But you get to the point where here we are, utterly dependent on these things that we often don't like very much. And in some ways, that's kind of the, you know, perfect definition of a dysfunctional, toxic relationship, hence the subtitle of my book. Um, But I believe it's not one that can't be repaired. In fact, I think it has to be fixed because plastics are going to be only more important, not less important to us in the future. So we hear a lot about the downsides of plastic, especially in a place like San Francisco. And so I want to spend some time just reminding us what amazing things plastics really are. And to start with that, I just want to kind of give a quick little lesson about um, being clear about what plastics are. They're polymers, which means they're long chains of molecules. I'm not a tech chemist, so I kind of think about them like daisy chains. Daisy chains strung together of smaller atomic units or molecules. This is a diagram of polyethylene. It's the plastic of packaging. You know, plastic bags, the lovely plastic bag that we just saw, milk jugs, um, lots and lots of packaging. This is a pretty simple plastic, um, but you can get much more complicated ones. And how these strings of the the daisy chain, uh, the pieces of the daisy chain are arranged pretty much determines what kind of plastic you're going to have, whether they're closely packed, whether there are other elements besides hydrogen and carbon, whether there are little side chains, little dangly, uh, you know, things like a charm bracelet. those can make a difference about whether a plastic is going to be hard or sticky or clear or fuzzy or whatever. Um, One of the confusions, I think, about plastic is we talk about it the way I've just been talking about it, as if it's a single thing. And in fact, there are tens of thousands of different plastics. Um, And they can be as different as one another as, you know, glass is from metal. They're also not all the same. Some are more useful than others, and some are, you know, better for the environment, better for our health than others. And I think we forget that sometimes. They're also not all synthetic. You know, we think of plastics as these unnatural materials, but plastic polymers are, um, you know, very natural things. Um, Our DNA is a polymer. Our skins are made of polymer. Our plants are made of polymers. Um, There are also natural plastics, um, uh, and they pretty much go back millennia. Um, Rubber is a natural polymer, um, a natural plastic, and, you know, this is um, sort of a picture of, I I think it was um, Mayans playing with the rubber ball, that kind of basketball that they liked to play. Um, Amber, natural polymer, and this is a vase, a jug rather, dating from Roman times. Horn is a natural polymer, and this is... um, a, uh, uh, these are rhino horns from, I think, medieval China. 
Now, the commercialization of plastics is another matter. That these go back millennia, these natural plastics, but the commercialization really only goes back to the 19th century. Um, and it was something that was, um, it was a period where the Victorians were kind of interested in looking at a new palette of materials. They were tired of just dealing with wood and metal and glass. Um, and they were also starting to realize that some of the natural substances that they relied on were um, starting to become scarce. So one of the ones that they were most concerned about was ivory. Ivory was used all over the place. It was used for buttons, lots of little stuff, but buttons, trays, brushes, combs, um, and billiard balls. Um, and uh, starting in the mid-19th century, you started to get these concerns that so much ivory was being hunted that um, elephants were in danger of uh, going into extinction. This is a news report. The, the, the pull-out quote I have there refers to Sheffield, England, which was a center of ivory manufacture. Um, <clears throat> so somewhere around 1869, a billiard ball manufacturer put out an ad um, offering $10,000 to any quote-unquote inventive genius who could come up with a substitute for ivory. And the ad caught the eye of an amateur inventor in New York named John Wesley Hyatt. This is him. He spent several years tinkering with um, a natural polymer cellulose, which comes from the cell walls of plants, and working with camphor and alcohol, and kind of working with recipes that other people had also been working with as well. And eventually he found a way to combine them to create this new material that he called celluloid. Um, celluloid was kind of the start of the romance because it was a material that offered real life-changing possibilities. It was an amazing material. It was waterproof and oilproof. It was malleable, but it could dry to be quite hard. You could do all sorts of cool stuff with celluloid. One of the most amazing things about celluloid was that you could make it look like um, natural substances. Ivory, for instance, <clears throat> a lot of celluloid got made into dressing sets. They called this French ivory. Um, but uh, <laughs> I don't know why French ivory. Um, but it could also be made to look like tortoise shell. This is an ear trumpet. Uh, it could be made to look like coral. Um, and, and, you know, this capacity to mimic kind of luxury natural substances became a major selling point. And ironically, um, you know, it was something that really um, made uh, this early plastic scene as a friend of nature. This is a quote from one of um, the promotional brochures for Hyatt's company. And as you can see, I mean, he's, he's plugging this as something that is going to be a savior of nature, not the kind of enemy of nature that we think of um, uh, plastics today. It also could be mass-manufactured, albeit at a much slower pace than later plastics that would come. And um, uh, one of the things that that meant was that it became sort of a medium for um, the democratization of consumer goods and of things that once had been luxury items. In my book, I track combs. Um, and you can see here examples of these combs that you know, look like what were really quite fantastically expensive items. But actually, these weren't expensive. They're made of celluloid. And it meant that you know, your average uh, secretary or shop girl could look like she was a Rockefeller. So there were other plastics that came along. Celluloid got refined into another plastic called cellulose acetate, which became the basis for film. But the next really significant plastic was something um, that was invented by a Belgian emigre named Leo Bakeland. Like Hyatt, Bakeland was looking for a substitute for a scarce natural resource. In this case, what he was looking to replace was shellac. 
Um, there was a huge demand for shellac in the late 19th, early 20th century because it turned out that shellac was actually a great insulator for electrical cables and lines. And this was a time when the country was undergoing rapid uh, electrification. Um, and um, the trouble is that, and I didn't know this about shellac, but shellac is made from the excretions of the lac beetle. And it takes something like 15,000 beetles six months to make a pound of shellac. <laughs> You're not going to wire up the whole country very easily that way. So, you know, people were looking for alternatives, and Bakeland... Um, again, you know, working on his own in a sort of homemade lab, came up with this entirely new material called, that he called after himself Bakelite. He was not a modest man. Bakelite was significant because it was really the first fully synthetic molecule. Unlike celluloid, which came from a natural polymer, this was a completely new molecule, never seen before. And though he'd created it as an electrical insulator, it actually got used for a lot of stuff. Um, and, you know, we're familiar with a lot of these things. Bakelite telephones, the radios, you know, all, all sorts of stuff, including, of course, billiard balls. Because as it turned out, celluloid was not very good for billiard balls. It's a flammable substance. And what would happen is when the billiard balls would collide, they'd make this loud sort of shotgun-like sound. And actually, um, there was a, a saloon keeper in Denver who wrote Hyatt and said he didn't mind the noise so much, but every guy in the bar drew a gun when they heard it. <laughs> so after Bakelite, we start to see a change in where plastic comes from. You know, Hyatt and Bakeland were lone entrepreneurs working on their own to solve a very specific problem. But, you know, by the early 20th century, you start to have these big, uh, petroleum country, companies, chemical companies, petrochemical companies, um, and you know companies like DuPont or Dow or Imperial Chemical in England, E.G. Farber, and the process of manufacturing that all of them were engaged in of making um, chemicals or refining oil are processes that generate huge amounts of waste, huge amounts of waste products and byproducts. And, you know, being good capitalist enterprises, they're trying to figure out what to do with this stuff. And they've got by this time now, industrial chemistry uh, departments, and they set the research scientists to work trying to figure out what to do with this stuff. And what happens um, in the teens, 20s, and 30s is this great burst of creativity, fantastic new polymer inventions. E.G. Farber said was inventing a new polymer every day in the mid-1920s. And in fact, most of the major plastics we know today, things like polyethylene, polyvinyl chloride, polystyrene, acrylic, nylon, all of them come out of this, what's considered like the golden era of polymer innovation. A lot of these materials actually were accidental discoveries. You know, polyethylene, for instance, um, was uh, it, it literally the product of a lab accident. Um, there was an explosion in this reactor vessel. The, the scientists looked in it the next morning, and there's this kind of white, waxy stuff at the bottom of the vessel. They had no idea what it was or what to do with it, and they actually thought it was a useless material. Same story for Teflon. But obviously, people did start to figure out what to do with these things. Um, nylon, for instance, was not an accidental invention. Du and DuPont knew exactly what to do with it. There was huge excitement. I don't know where this is from. I just think it's a hilarious photo. Um, uh, but uh, uh, DuPont spent years developing nylon. And when they finally had it, they kind of um, unveiled it in these very masterful campaigns. 
They um, showed it off at places like the Golden Gate Exposition of 1939, uh, where they have these models tussling over a pair of stockings to show how strong it was. Um, they began carefully doling out nylons to department stores and limiting the amounts that people could buy. So you actually literally had nylon riots. This um, picture is from, I think it's from Cincinnati, I'm not sure where, May 15th, 1940, the first week nylons went on sale in the U.S. And, you know, incredible excitement on the part of women. So the love affair is starting to heat up. There was this great sense of excitement about these new materials, even if people weren't seeing a lot of them, because in point of fact, plastics was still a very small industry, and there weren't a lot of uh, products out there. Um, but there were these trade shows, and there were like the, uh, you know, uh, DuPont had um, their wonderful World of Chemistry show that they used to take around. Bakelite had a traveling cavalcade. Um, and uh, I, in my book, I quote this woman at one DuPont exhibit who gushed, you know, isn't it wonderful how DuPont is uh, improving upon nature? People told pollsters around this time that cellophane was the third most beautiful word in the English language after motherhood and memory. This is just one of a trio of ads. There's one with twins wrapped in cellophane, and there's actually one with triplets wrapped in cellophane. So there's a lot of excitement about the promise of plastic, even though people didn't have a lot of it in their daily life, and not a lot was being made out of plastic. What changed things? World War II. Start of the war, the military was clear that they wanted to conserve strategic metals and materials, and they called on the plastics industry, which then was really a nascent industry, to see if they could come up with replacements for things like brass or steel or silk or rubber. And the industry complied. This is one of the first things that got made out of um, plastic. It's a plastic bugle that was made by a company that had only just started making them. They had manufactured like a red toy bugle the previous Christmas. And um, the company managed to put together a prototype um, when they were asked by the Army, like in the space of two weeks. Um, and it's a funny story. The, the uh, president of the company had only one prototype. He took it down to Washington, where the major who was in charge of this stuff had the Army's best bugler on hand to see if he could play it. And he played taps, and he played Reveille, and then he played them nearby, and then he had the guy go off a half mile away to see if they could still hear it. Then they threw it against a brick wall to see how durable it was. Um, and when it passed muster, they made uh, 200000 the major then went on to order whistles and helmets and other sorts of plastic substitutes. Plastic went into parachutes, it went into the acrylic uh, windows for, um, for bombers, it went into gas masks. This mortar fuse, and I really actually don't know what a mortar fuse is, but it was the first million dollar order of plastics. So we're in the war years, and as so often happens during wartime, the romance deepens. People hear about these amazing new materials, and they're being told these heroic feats that plastics are performing in battle. And they come to be seen as critical to, uh, to the Allies' success, and in fact they were. Polyethylene, that plastic that no one could figure out what to do with, well it turns out polyethylene is really good at shielding uh, radio frequencies and shielding radio transmission lines. And so they were able to use polyethylene to build um, radar that was light enough to put on planes. And airborne radar really proved critical to uh, the Allies winning the war because the Germans actually didn't have polyethylene. Teflon, again, another, you know, who knows what to do with this polymer. That was used in the Manhattan Project because it could withstand very corrosive gases. And they used it to line vessels for the, some of the gases that were being used to develop the atomic bomb. Saran, 
was a plastic that was used to um, to coat boats and ships and, and planes to protect them against salt water and wind. Heroic qualities that got turned to sandwich wrap after the war and became a selling point. So historian Jeffrey Michael has a very good book about the history of plastic talks about the kind of, um, not just love, but the sort of utopian vision that people had about plastic um, in the 40s. And nowhere was it clearer than this statement from two British chemists who were writing uh, just before the war, but in many ways the sentiments they wrote were just as strong, if not stronger, after the war. So I'll let you take a look at this. You know, let us try to imagine a dweller in the plastic age. This plastic man will come into a world of color and bright shining surfaces where childish hands find nothing to break, no sharp edges or corners to cut or graze, no crevices to harbor dirt or germs. It is a world free from moth and rust and full of color, a world in which man, like a magician, makes what he wants for almost every need. And I love this quote because, you know, it actually describes the world we live in today in many ways. But we've seen the dystopian side of this vision. So, you know, the first time I read this, I just kind of cringed. It's hard to reconnect with the sort of wonder that's behind these words. Now, come the end of the war, you have this big, built-up production capacity, and you have a pent-up consumer demand. It's not hard to see what's going to happen next, which was an explosion in plastics production. Um, this just goes back to 1950, but as you can see, you know, it just sort of shoots upward and upward and upward. And what's not marked on this, but it's worth noting, is in 1979, plastics production exceeded that of steel. And so some people take that as sort of the official start of the age of plastic. I think it goes much further back. But, you know, as one plastics executive recalled, in 1946, virtually nothing was made of plastic and almost anything could be. And so you know, almost anything was. In 1946, the industry held uh, its first, first national plastics exposition, and they invited the public to come. It was a trade show, but 87,000 people lined up four abreast for blocks in New York to get into this show, um, eager for a chance to see stuff that to us would be very prosaic now. I mean, things like nylon fishing line or, you know, crystal clear acrylic or suitcases that, you know, could carry a heavy load but were very lightweight themselves um, or uh, window screens that, you know, came in their own colors. Plastics to them seemed to promise abundance on the cheap. And so, you know, who wouldn't be in favor of that? It was particularly exciting to a generation that had come through the privations of the Depression, had come through the scrimping and saving and scrounging of the, of the war, and who now had, you know, a lot of money to spend. Um, plastics, you know, they could also see was going to help democratize consumer goods in the same way that celluloid had, but on a much broader scale. And it would make it possible for middle-class people to enjoy a whole new level of material wealth. So what happens over the next decade, 15 years or so, is that you get this flood of plastic stuff going into household appliances, electronics, home furnishings. I like this photo. It's captioned Mother's Nightmare. It was in Life magazine in 1946, and it was designed to demonstrate the toughness of plastics. And I don't know if you can see it clearly, but the kid on the couch is writing on the wall. The little girl has just spilled pudding on the chair, and the boy in the corner is trying to light the curtains on fire. 
Um, and, and the caption was, if this were the usual kind of room, the children would be doing $150 worth of damage. Um, but, you know, it was plastic, so it's all safe. And in fact, you know, throughout the 50s, if you look in the women's magazines, there are all these basically advertorial articles going on about, you know, how much uh, convenience plastics would bring. And they all kind of had this one line over and over again, you know, you can wipe clean with a damp cloth. Plastics, you know, were used in automotives. The, uh, the acrylic taillight, you wouldn't think of it, but it's, it was actually a big deal, a big innovation, and got showed off. Of course, permitted the Corvette, which was made almost entirely of fiberglass. Plastics, uh, you know, made possible these whole new fabrics. Um, this is uh, from a 1953 Sears catalog, you know, uh, uh, touting fabrics that <laughs> not many people would brag about today, but things like Orlon or Dacron, uh, new textiles for wash and wear clothing. Again, you know, for people, for women especially, who had been ironing stuff, you could imagine um, how wonderful this sounded. Because of the baby boom, plastics became um, common in toys. Now, this Busy Bee, I don't know how many of you remember this, but I do, the Fisher-Price Busy Bee was actually the first toy to use plastic, styrene, for the little wings. But it also made possible Barbie. And the Frisbee. This is the Frisbee's inventor, Walt Morrison, who actually, his original invention was a disc he called the Pluto Platter, and of course then he had to dress up like this to advertise it until he sold it to Whammo. You had the hula hoop. Um, the hula hoop was made from high-density polyethylene, and actually the story behind the hula hoop was that um, Phillips Petroleum was trying to get down the recipe for this particular kind of plastic, and they couldn't get it right. They kept producing piles of off-spec material. They had sort of warehouses of it. And Whammo, which was then a pretty new company, heard about it and said, you know, we'll take that off your hands. And they made this toy, which was really kind of the first big toy craze, you know, sort of the Tickle Me Elmo of its time. Legos, of course, are made of plastic. And then you get Silly Putty. So Silly Putty was actually... Um, something that was invented because uh, the, the inventor of Silly, Silly Putty had been commissioned by the army to come up with a uh, replacement, a synthetic rubber. And <laughs> this is what he came up with. The army said, mm, I don't think so. Uh, but you know, Silly Putty, you know, it's just something that begs to be touched and played with. So he got in the habit of carrying it around in his pocket and he would, you know, have it with him. He'd go to parties, pull it out, show people the cool stuff you can do, how you can pull newsprint off. And he was at a party where there was a woman who owned a toy company. And she said, I know what we can do with that. The thing is, at a certain point, it becomes clear that there are really only so many cars and refrigerators and stereos and toys and clothes that you can make. The plastics industry wanted to keep growing and, you know, was looking for new markets. And um, at a certain point, it became clear what was the next market for plastics disposables. And it really was a conscious strategy. You look at the trade journals and you see people in the industry talking about how to develop the disposables market. Um, there was you know, a conference where one executive said to people there, your future is in the garbage wagon. And so now you start to get a whole new kind of use of plastic going into packaging. That stop at deodorant uh, on your left, uh, that was actually the first squeeze bottle ever. I think it was introduced in uh, 1953, um, you get things like these soap bottles. You get disposable diapers, which, you know, pundits used to say was the reason for the baby boom. You get, you know, ideas like disposable clothes. You get, you know, the sort of uh, ephemera we're so used to today, razors and um, lighters, which actually were, you know, 
launched by BIC, and there were big wars between BIC and Gillette over who was going to control those markets, cling wrap, um, this sort of thing. Uh, you get um, vending machines with disposable cups. And actually, when the first coffee vending machines came out, um, people tended to save and reuse the cups, much to the consternation of the plastics industry. And again, you look in trade journals and you see you know, people talking about how can we teach people and encourage people to throw those cups away. And of course, we did learn. So if coffee is good in a vending machine, why not? <laughs> or better still... Communion cups, throw away communion cups. It's a silly example, but you can see how the idea of disposability builds. And so eventually, you know, we come to um, the celebration, that what, what Life magazine called the throwaway lifestyle. And this photo was a celebration of what disposables enabled, um, making life easier, more convenient, cleaner. The stuff being tossed here, life, you know, said in a kind of exultant caption, would have taken the housewife, the very happy mom in the middle of the picture, more than 100 hours to clean. Now, plastics didn't create the disposable lifestyle, the throwaway mindset. There were a lot of cultural and economic forces behind that. The rise of suburbia, the development of self-serve uh, grocery stores, the development of fast food chains, self-serve pharmacies, all these things you know, called for more packaging. The building of the interstate highway system actually played a major role in the end of refillable bottles for beverages um, because... Uh, 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 the bottlers didn't have to ha have to stick to regional uh, networks any longer. But, um, you know, disposable bottles surely got a, a boost when, in 1971, the brother of the artist, Andrew Wyeth, um, a chemical engineer named Nathaniel Wyeth, found a way to make the plastic soda bottle, found a way to take PET plastic and allow it to hold this very kind of explosive carbonated beverage. And look what happens when you have a plastic bottle. You know, that was the large size in the 1930s on the left, and, you know, that's nothing compared to the large size today. So plastic didn't create this kind of culture of convenience or throwaway mindset, but it facilitated it. They facilitated it because plastics were cheap, lightweight, and we got better and better at making polymers that could do exactly what we wanted them to do. You know, I, I talked to a guy in the course of my reporting. One of the guys I talked to was a scientist who was involved in developing the bagged lettuce, the bag for lettuce, which actually, I didn't know, it turns out it's really the product of a pretty um, strenuous scientific investigation to find a polymer that can allow exactly the right respiration rate to allow the oxygen in and the carbon dioxide out so that lettuce won't wilt or, you know, mold too quickly. As the culture of convenience took hold, plastic really was increasingly the material used for packaging and throwaways. Those same virtues of plastic, cheapness, lightweight, nearly infinite malleability, also meant it was used increasingly for whole new varieties of schlock. The, you know, icon of schlock, the plastic pink flamingo. And I actually talked to the guy who invented it, Don Featherstone, who told me he was very proud to have brought bad taste to the masses. <laughs> You know, the irony here is that as plastic assumed a greater and greater place in our lives, we became more and more disenchanted with it. Uh, the linguist Jeffrey Nunberg dates the sort of scales falling away moment to the Corfam debacle. I don't know how many of you are 
old enough to remember Corfam, but it was this fake leather that DuPont spent years trying to develop and tens of million dollars to develop. It was going to be the, you know, the future shoe, the shoe of the future. But the problem was that Corfam shoes, when they were introduced in the early 60s, were awful. They didn't breathe, they didn't stretch, they were uncomfortable, and after about, I don't know, seven years or so, <laughs> DuPont sold the line to a company in Poland. Um, and for the first time, what happens in the 60s is you start seeing plastic getting used as a word, not you know, the most wonderful word in the human language, but as a word to mean shallow or phony or insincere. You know, hence this punchline. Now, of course, Mr. McGuire was right. In 1960, the average American consumed about 30 pounds of plastic a year. Today, we consume more than 300 pounds of plastic a year. And, of course, some of that's going into incredibly important and valuable things. MRI machines, computers, cell phones, clothing, microwaves, um, lightweight cars and planes. But a lot of it is accounted for by disposables. In fact, about half of all plastic produced goes into single-use applications, and about a third of that goes into packaging. And again, no question, a lot of that is really important. Um, disposable syringes are vital to preventing the spread of infectious diseases. Packaging in a world global food economy is also essential, even in a national food economy. But with plastic, it's just always all too easy to go too far. So this single-serving banana wrapped in plastic, which John Stewart said is for people who love bananas but hate the biodegradability of the skin. <laughs> when plastic gets used for this kind of ridiculous stuff, it's really easy to lose sight of the fact that these are really high-value materials. So here we are today, the romance has soured in many ways, but the dependence keeps growing, which, as I mentioned before, is kind of the classic definition of a dysfunctional relationship. Now, some folks want an all-out divorce. You see things like this. But I don't think that's realistic or even desirable. You know, plastics are going to be important for our future, especially in an era of global warming where carbon becomes the metric, uh, the important metric, you know, not many materials can compete with plastic given their lightweightness. We want lightweight plastic cars and trains and planes. We want plastic, uh, you know, housing components and solar panels. In a world of seven billion people and growing, we're not going to be able to feed and clothe and heal and house all those people purely from the materials of the natural world. We're going to need synthetics. But I do think there are some serious issues related to plastics that we're going to have to start dealing with. So let's start with this. One is the fact that these are materials that are made out of fossil fuels. Now, um, it takes about 4% of the supplies of oil and maybe about 7 or 8% of natural gas to go into making plastics. Um, that's, you know, not an insignificant number. It's nothing compared to say, cars, but it would be better to find renewable sources for these things. And I'll come back later. I think the second issue is the problem of plastic waste. 
we generate close to 32 million tons of plastic waste a year. And that figure is a little misleading if you think about the fact that plastic is very lightweight. It would be a much different figure if, uh, if I had it in volume. But it's about 12% of the waste stream. The vast majority of that stuff goes to landfill, which, again, is insane if you think about it. These are hydrocarbons, valuable hydrocarbons that we extracted from the ground at great expense, at great environmental cost, and we're burying them. That's nuts. Um, But as the green line shows, almost none of this stuff is recycled, less than 10%, which is way less than any other material. You know, those chasing arrows that are always on the bottom of plastic packages, those are incredibly misleading because although most plastic things are eminently recyclable, very little is actually recycled. There are a lot of reasons for that. Plastics are a challenge for recyclers. Many of them look alike, but they can't be recycled together. If you mix, say, a PET soda bottle, which is the number one plastic, with um, you know, a, a PVC bottle, number three, you're going to just get this unusable gloop. In some cases, it's really difficult to actually collect them. It's, it's not economical. That's been the challenge with things like plastic bags and styrofoam, both of which are so lightweight that it's just not economical to truck around a truckload of them. Um, in other cases, there aren't enough end markets to make it worthwhile, and this is sort of a you know, uh, self-fulfilling prophecy. But that's been the problem with po- uh, polypropylene, number five plastic, which is the stuff you see in um, yogurt tubs, margarine tubs. Polypropylene's a great plastic. It's probably one of the best plastics out there. It's clean, it's safe, um, but, um, but there haven't been end markets for it, and so it hasn't been recycled in any great amounts. That's starting to change. Whole Foods has this Gimme Five program where you can take back yogurt tubs, and a lot of it goes to this company called Preserve, which makes them into things like toothbrushes and dishes and bowls. Um, And, you know, the recycling situation is improving, but not fast enough. And I was actually surprised to find that the recycling infrastructure is so sort of weak and flawed that a lot of the plastics collected in communities end up being shipped to China, even in San Francisco. So I visited a recycling plant in China. This is one that um, doesn't recycle consumer waste, but industrial waste from the U.S., And as you can see here, you know, these are, (laughs) literally, these women are standing there with these enormous bags of plastic sheeting, stuff that doesn't get recycled in this country, and they're, you know, by hand cutting the labels off so that um, it can be reprocessed. Um, Meanwhile, American recyclers, and and, uh, the, the PET soda bottles, I should say, the number one soda bottles, which are the most recycled material in this country, um... Most of those go to China where they are recycled into fleece and into um, uh, polyester fill, into fab- fabric. Meanwhile, recyclers in this country can't get enough uh, used bottles and are importing them from Mexico and other parts of Latin America. Something is very wrong here when this is going on. I think probably the most serious fallout, though, from our failure to deal with plastic waste is the problem of plastic litter. Plastic doesn't break down like paper or even metal. It will eventually biodegrade. I mean, you know, contrary to popular uh, uh, ideas, plastic is not forever. But, you know, is that 10 years, 100 years, 1,000 years? You know, it depends. It depends on the plastic, depends on the environment. And in any case, it's not a meaningful time frame. Um, any plastic in the environment is going to be there a very, very long time. 
And that becomes a real problem when it ends up in the ocean, which is where we know a lot of plastic ends up. Plastic's been found on beaches and seas around the world in incredibly remote places. Um, I talked to one researcher who described going to a, a tiny, like, little rocky outcropping um, aptly named Inaccessible Island near Antarctica. His crew went ashore in one of their zodiacs, and there they found plastic bottles. You've all heard reports about the North Pacific garbage patch. And contrary to that film, which we just saw, it really doesn't look anything like the, uh, the, the, the plastic there. It does not look like what they showed in the film. You actually don't find a lot of plastic bags there because they get broken up by the time they get that far out. But it's an area in the Pacific where currents and atmospheric conditions um, create a slow vortex that kind of traps uh, that pulls in and traps trash from North America and Asia. A lot of it's from Asia. Um, and actually, this is a little misleading because really what it looks like is sort of a dog bone shape with two, two convergence zones, one near Asia, one near um, the US, or North America. Um, what doesn't, eventually stuff gets trapped there for a while and then eventually gets spit back out and you, it ends up um, often on beaches. And, you know, unfortunately, this is not the only such place. There are at least five similar gyres um, around the world. Um, how much is in them? Nobody can really tell you. Probably the North Pacific has the most because it's also such a heavily traveled trade route. But, um, you know, how much is there? It, I, I wouldn't trust any number because there's really no way to know. The plastic isn't just on the surface. It's suffused through the water column. Um, I do know that there was a study that came out about two weeks ago that found that um, the uh, concentration of plastic there had probably increased about a hundredfold since the early 70s, which makes sense. I mean, our production and consumption has gone up significantly since then. This is a picture of a Laysan albatross. Many of you have probably seen pictures similar to this or this one. The Laysan albatross is a bird that nests on Midway Atoll, and the adult birds forage for food um, out in the ocean in an area that includes the garbage patch. And that means that often they're picking up stuff that they mistake for their traditional food, like squid eggs, and they bring it back to their nests on the atoll, and they feed it to their young. Biologists on Midway now estimate that pretty much every one of the 1.1 million birds there has some quantity of plastic in their guts. It sounds awful. In point of fact, we don't actually know what the health consequences are to the birds. These birds are evolved to deal with indigestible stuff, but um, there is some suspicion that you know, the plastic in their guts um, means that they can't actually tell when they're hungry or thirsty, and a significant number of birds there do die of um, dehydration. Unfortunately, the albatross is not alone. Um, you know, all told, there's something like 267 species that have been impacted, uh, injured, impaired, entangled, or killed by plastic, and that's, you know, three-fourths of all sea turtles. This includes the leatherback turtle, which is an animal that has been around since the time of the dinosaurs. Um, it also includes, under the marine mammals, monk seals, which are these a very endangered population in the Hawaiian islands. Plastic's not the only thing that's killing them, but the entanglement by ghost nets is certainly hurrying them toward extinction. Now, most plastic in the ocean doesn't stay in the form that you see it in this bird or as the, the uh, movie on the plastic bag showed, most of it actually gets uh, broken down into little bits, little tiny pieces. And that poses a whole other set of issues. Um, 
it's, it's, these little bits seem to be affecting the ocean ecology. There was just a report showing that um, a particular variety of sea insect is uh, depositing eggs on these little bits in much higher numbers than ever before. Who knows what that's going to do to the ecosystem out there. Uh, but the other and sort of more worrisome, immediately worrisome thing, is that these tiny bits absorb toxins that are already in the ocean. They're like sponges. And they pick up things like PCBs and DDTs, persistent organic pollutants that have been in the oceans that were banned, you know, three decades, four decades ago, but persist in the ocean and, um, and get absorbed onto these little plastic bits. Now for this problem, this might be the poster child. This is a lanternfish. Um, it's much less charismatic than the albatross, but its mothers love them. Um, they're deep sea dwellers that um, come up at night to feed on plankton on the surface. And research suggests that um, as long with the plankton, they're also eating these little plastic bits. A recent study found 9% of those sampled had plastic in their, in their uh, guts. The concern is if the toxins on these plastics can soar off of the bits into the fish's tissue, you have a vehicle for moving these toxins up the feed food chain as they are eaten by bigger and bigger and bigger fish and eventually by us. The problem of plastic pollution in the ocean is a really tough one. It's not going to be easily cleared up. I mean, there are people who are doing programs like hauling in abandoned nets and recycling them into oil, but you can't do that with this confetti that suffuses the water. Really, the only answer for that is going to be stopping it at the source, which means going back to this problem of plastic waste, resolving it, finding ways to reduce our use of it, um, recycle more, um, and get better uh, collection infrastructures. There's another big problem with plastic, and that is the fact that there, most plastics are made, are often made with hazardous materials. Um, Biomonitoring bio studies are showing that the chemicals contained in plastics can often wind up in us. Nearly all of us, even those who live the most crunchy, super organic, groovy lives, are carrying traces of things like plasticizers and flame retardants and Teflon and bisphenol A in our systems. There really is no escaping this. So what are the risks? Well, it's hard to know because you can't do controlled experiments with people. Instead, we are kind of the experiment, an uncontrolled experiment. But animal studies and epidemiological studies are coming back with some worrisome information. Um, this is, uh, you know, BPA, bisphenol A, pretty well known. It's used to make polycarbonate plastics, the hard clear plastic that you would see uh, as a number seven on packaging. Um, pardon me? Oh, I'm sorry. There, bisphenol A. Bisphenol A was literally invented as a synthetic estrogen, and it seems to mimic estrogen in the body. And it's been associated with, um, uh, as I said, it's, it's uh, um, used to make polycarbonate plastic. It's used in the epoxies that line food and beverage cans. Um, and you'll find it in bottles less than you used to. Can linings, it comes on the uh, thermal cash receipts. Um, and, you know, animal and cell studies come up with some pretty worrisome findings. Um, human studies show correlations with some serious illnesses. Um, it's an estrogen mimic, and it seems to act on systems that are responsible, responsive to estrogen. Phthalates is another. Phthalates are used as solvents, lubricants, plasticizers. They're found in soft vinyl. Um, 
PVC in its native form is sort of this brittle plastic, and the only way that you can make it usable is with additives. To make it soft and flexible, they use phthalates. And so you find them in a whole slew of things. This list is a very incomplete list. Um, and again, you know, uh, it's a hormone disruptor. In this case, it seems to interfere with testosterone, and so it affects systems that testosterone touch. And you'll see that last one there, play behavior. That's from a study by a woman named Shanna Swan who's been following um, one particular phthalate called DEHP for some time. She has a group of children that she's been following since before birth. She measured the levels of DEHP in their mothers and then has been looking at what happened to the boys, the sons of these mothers from birth on. And she's found some pretty unsettling things. One of the weirdest and kind of in, in some ways really disturbing is that when she went back to these kids as preschoolers, she found that the boys whose mothers had the highest levels of DEHP, and I want to add here, it, this is not big levels. These are environmental, regular exposures, everyday exposures. The mothers who, who scored highest in that, uh, their sons tended to play, engage in sort of less masculine forms of play. They were the boys who liked to sit and play with puzzles or with board games, the boys that many mothers would like to have best. But, you know, there was a distinctive difference, and it turns out that play behavior is a kind of hardwired behavior that is affected by androgens in the system. Other chemicals, there are other chemicals that are found in plastics that, um, that are of concern. Brominated flame retardants, there's the antibacterial triclosan, nonylphenols, styrene. Um, in fact, you know, I, I talked with one expert who's estimated that there are some 50 of these so-called endocrine disruptors that have been approved for use in food contact materials, much of which are plastic. Um, the fact is, though, we really don't know which ones we're exposed to or how much we're exposed to because manufacturers aren't required to list the chemical contents of their packages or other materials on the label. Um, and given the long supply chain of plastics, often they may not even know themselves what they're selling. So here's where we come to a really tough problem, which is this is not something we can really deal with as consumers. The laws in this country tend to treat chemicals as if they were safe until proven harmful. And that's just created an incredibly, you know, that is reflected in an incredibly weak regulatory system. Um, most of the 80,000 plus chemicals that are in commerce today have never really been sufficiently vetted for safety. Um, the EPA has, uh, you know, managed to, uh, d d doesn't test most chemicals that are in process. Same thing for the FDA, which approved a slew of chemicals for food contact uses back in the 1960s and has never really gone back and reviewed them. Now, alternatives are being developed and even put into use. For example, there are sort of citrus-based chemicals and, and uh, castor oil-based chemicals that are being used as replacements for phthalates as a plasticizer for vinyl. But really, um, you know, the market forces that are encouraging the development of these things aren't really an answer for the underlying problem of our weak regulatory system because, you know, take a look at BPA. You'd be hard-pressed today to find a baby bottle or sports water bottle that has BPA in it. Instead, you see this kind of label. So what does that mean? What's in it? There's nothing on the bottle that tells you what this plastic is. There are a couple of different plastics are being used as replacements, at least one of which is pretty closely uh, related to BPA. Are they safe? Who knows? We don't know. And we won't know as long as we continue to regulate on a chemical-by-chemical -chemical basis and work off of the assumption that chemicals are safe until proven otherwise. 
um, you know, what we really need is uh, a shift in regulation that requires, as Europe does, that manufacturers demonstrate a chemical is safe before they're allowed to put it on the market. That's not the system we have now. So these issues about plastics aren't new. Um, the, there's been evidence about plastic in the ocean since the 60s. There's been evidence about plastic leaching chemicals since before that. But I think we've reached a crossroads. We've made nearly as much plastic in the, last, in the first decade of this millennium as we did in um, the entire preceding century. And though production dipped slightly when the market collapsed in 2008, it's starting to pick up again. And now we have a whole new wrinkle encouraging more production, which is shale gas. Most plastic in this country is made from natural gas. And the shale gas boom is just like, you know, Christmas every day to the plastics industry. Um, already you've got um, nine companies have announced um, that they're going to be building crackers, which are the big furnaces that break up hydrocarbons into the gases that are used to make chemicals and, and plastics. Nine companies have announced plans for new crackers, including one in Pennsylvania. Um, what that means, what this sort of obscure slide translates to, is that there's going to probably be about 25% more polyethylene coming into the market over the next several years. That's going to have to go somewhere, and I think what you're going to see is a big push for um, new outlets of polyethylene, new kinds of packaging, new kinds of products. There was a similar push starting in the 60s when the polyethylene industry took off, and that's why instead of paper bags, we have plastic dry cleaner bags, plastic produce bags, plastic garbage bags, and of course the most ubiquitous plastic bag of all, the plastic shopping bag. The other place that all this new polyethylene is probably going to go is overseas. Um, because in many parts of the world, Asia, Africa, Latin America, uh, people want to have the same kind of lifestyle that we have in the States. They want to enjoy the sort of convenience and middle-class comforts that we've enjoyed in the U.S. and in Europe. Um, and these are the big new markets for plastics. This is where a lot of the new demand is coming from. And these are countries with even less developed infrastructures for waste in many cases. So many people are looking at um, you know, solving the problems through a whole new class of plastics, bioplastics, plastics made from renewable sources. Um, there's a big push now on the part of all the major resin manufacturers, the plastics makers, to start looking for renewable sources, um, get away from fossil fuels. And um, right now, these bioplastics represent about 1% of uh, the whole resin market, but it's definitely the long-term future. You don't see these kind of demand numbers in this chart for regular petroplastics anymore. Um, and, you know, it's a funny future because it's a kind of back-to-the-future future if you think about it. I mean, we started with plant-based based, uh, plastics with celluloid. So people are looking at a lot of different sources. Um, I apologize for the fuzziness of this chart, but it just gives you a sense of, you know, you could make bio-based plastics from a lot of different feedstocks, from agricultural crops, from uh, uh, non-agricultural crops. You can make it from bacteria that generate polymers. You can make it from switchgrass and, and biograss, uh, biomass. Um, you can make it from agricultural waste. You can make it from... Um, our waste. There are people looking at making plastics out of sewage and out of the methane that comes off of landfills. 
Unfortunately, I think there's a lot of confusion about bioplastics. Um, as you know, this list of feedstocks suggests, bioplastics like petroplastics are not a single thing. There's a lot of different bio-based plastics, and what they can do, what problems they can solve, what problems they create really varies. It depends on the material, and it depends on how it's going to be used. There's one problem you could say all of these bio-based plastics solves, and that's the carbon footprint of plastic. Whether you're using corn, whether you're using you know, corn stover, whether you're using switchgrass, these are all going to have a lower carbon footprint than um, fossil fuel-based plastics, even when you factor in the water and the fertilizer and all that that's used. But bioplastics don't solve necessarily the end-of-life issues. Being bio-based doesn't make a plastic biodegradable. Those are different things. You can actually have... <clears throat> Plastics made from fossil fuels that biodegrade, and you can have plastics made from biosources that don't biodegrade. Um, one of the most common plastics, bioplastics out there right now, is called polylactic acid, PLA, corn plastic, or it's marketed under the name INGEO. It's made by NatureWorks, which is owned by Cargill, so not surprisingly, it's made by from corn, and it's been using in a lot of stuff. This was the plastic made famous when Sun Chips came out with their compostable bag that was so loud when it crinkled that people said it had the same sort of loudness of a jet cockpit. Um, <laughs> they had to reformulate it. These are the things that we reject plastic products on, the loudness of crinkling. Um, <clears throat> The problem with this plastic, among other things, is that technically it's compostable, but you're not going to make it break down in your backyard composter. Um, there are even commercial composting facilities that say that things made from PLA don't break down within the, I can't remember, is it 60 days, 120 days that they're supposed to. Um, and, um, um, uh, and, and most communities in the U.S. don't have composting infrastructures. So in theory, it's a great plastic, but in practice, you know, it doesn't have an end-of-life solution built into it, really. And meanwhile, recyclers hate it, because if it gets mixed up with a bale of conventional plastics, it's just going to muck them up. Another kind of uh, bioplastic out there is the plant bottle. Um, the plant bottle is, uh, right now, it's, it's made from sugar cane. Um, about a third of the bottle now is actually this plant-based plastic. This is not a new plastic. What, what Coke and the, the Brascam, the Brazilian partner that's making this stuff, did, is they're using sugarcane to make the exact same molecule as regular number one PET plastic. This is not a biodegradable plastic. It has to be recycled. Arguably, that was a good thing. Well, you know, it's better to go into a recycling stream that exists than the sort of scarcely existent composting screen, uh, stream. So these materials only um, address the waste problem if the manufacturers have worked that into the design of the base resin and the products made from it. Bioplastics also aren't an automatic answer to the issue of hazardous chemicals in plastic. They're only safer if they're made with safer materials. And that means a commitment to safety throughout the supply chain. Um, and that can be difficult to ensure. Uh, in 2010, Stonyfield Farms decided they wanted to package a new type of children's yogurt in um, corn plastic. And they went to their compounder. These are the guys who take sort of a base plastic and mix in various additives to give it, you know, just the right properties that, that somebody wants. And they said, you know, um, 
uh, we have figured out everything that's in this but the last 3%. Can you tell us what's in that 3%? Because we really want to make sure there's nothing nasty in here that children would eat. And the compounder said, no, that's a proprietary trade secret. So what Stonyfield actually ended up having to do was come up with a list of 2,300 different chemicals that it wanted to make sure were not in this little yogurt cup and present it to the compounder and have the compounder say, yeah, none of those are in there for them to really sort of feel secure. Now, this is Stonyfield Farms backed by, you know, Group Danone, which is one of the biggest food companies in the world. And, you know, they, to their credit, they were willing to take that extra step. This is just a quick start chart uh, to show you that, you know, again, bioplastics measure up differently. They measured, this was a study looking at the sustainability of bioplastics. And as you can see here quickly, you know, when you measure for occupational health and safety, you can come up with a different ranking than when you measure for environmental impacts. And in the end, the study concluded that really no bioplastic out there is fully sustainable yet. Put it another way. There are efforts afoot to develop a soy-based polyvinyl chloride. Now, of all the plastics out there, polyvinyl chloride, PVC, is a really problem plastic. It's made with chlorine, and because of that, it's a nightmare to manufacture, it's hazardous to manufacture, and it's a nightmare to dispose of because if it's burned, it releases dioxins and furans into the atmosphere, you know, incredibly potent carcinogens. And, you know, it's a brittle plastic, and so it almost always needs additives, including things like phthalates. You know, is the carbon issue significant enough to make this, ish this kind of plastic from plants, or should we just get rid of it? Another example, biodegradable bags. I mean, do we really need single-use bags? You know, there may be a place for them. There may be a place for biodegradable bags, but maybe we should rethink the whole bag issue. Sometimes I look at biopolymers and I think, you know, we're kind of at the same place the plastic industry was at following World War II. Huge enthusiasm, huge excitement, and a desire to put these new plastics any place possible, and a desire for sort of a silver bullet uh, solution to our plastic woes. You know, a sense that here is a partner that at last will solve all of our kind of dysfunctional uh, plastic relationships. But there are lots of outstanding challenges and questions um, as we move on to this next generation of plastics. How much do we use food crops? Should we use food crops? Or even more controversially, genetically modified food crops uh, for bioplastics? Or genetically modified bacteria, which is a whole kind of a whole sort of line of bioplastics. Can we use sustainably grown biomass for plastics? To what extent can we exploit the waste that's already present? Um, you know, which after all, the use of waste was really what gave plastics a leg up, economically speaking, back in the uh, late 19th century, or early 20th century. You know, what will it take to develop a composting or recycling infrastructure to deal with these plastics at the end of their lives? Because they're not good in landfills. If the, if the plastic biodegrades in a landfill, if you have a biodegradable plastic in a landfill, it's going to generate methane, which is an even more potent uh, greenhouse gas than CO2. You know, what I'm suggesting here is that the promise of bioplastics depends on really rethinking our relationship to plastics, how we make them, how we produce them, how we use them, and, you know, by extension, kind of rethinking our whole material world. This time around, I'm really hoping that we can give it a more holistic cradle-to-cradle -cradle approach where we ensure that the plastics we make, the products we make from them, you know, can either be recycled back into nature or into technology. Um, this is a bridge, it's a, this is a story that I end my book with, and this is another way of sort of thinking 
forward about plastics. This bridge was built by a New Jersey company that has commercialized a technology that takes um, old milk jugs and car bumpers and smushes them together. I don't know how, but smushes them together to make this incredibly durable, strong, tough material. They're making I-beams out of it and they're using them to build um, uh, docks and marinas and, in this case, bridges. This bridge um, was built in Fort Bragg, and as you can see, it's strong enough to hold an M1 Abrams tank. Other bridges they've built from the same material are being used um, for railroad bridges. So it's a really strong material. And I like it because, um, you know, bridge metaphor for moving to the future. Um, and I think, you know, millennia from now, when archaeologists scrape down through the stratum of this era, which uh, my friend, the beach plastic artist Richard Lang has called the plasticine, you know, are they going to find it simply stuffed with immortal throwaways? Or, you know, can we change the way we make and use plastics? So what they find are artifacts like this bridge, which I think really testify to our technical ingenuity and to our wisdom to use that technology well. So thank you all. Thank you. Thanks. Let's go over here and sit down and deal okay. with some questions. How's my mic? Mic, mic, mic. Do I have a mic? Yes, good. So the Long Now audience is interested in this. Who else is interested? Who's asking you to give these talks? Oh, I was, uh, well, you know, it's interesting. I thought that my audience would be environmentalists, but I'm actually hearing from industry, who um, I don't know if it's just uh, sort of, um, uh, you know, kind of a confessional thing or if they're really interested in hearing this. But they, at least some people in industry are interested in hearing this message. Say more about that. So where have you gone? What happens there? Well, not a whole lot, but, um, you know, one of the, one of the more interesting talks that I gave, there's a group of plastic bag manufacturers in um, California who are a really interesting group because uh, unlike the plastic industry as a whole, these folks really saw the writing on the wall about marine debris and they really recognized that this is a serious issue they had to grapple with. But they make plastic bags, um, and you know they're not really interested in giving up that business. And um, they've been trying to sort of figure out some way of either you know encouraging recycling of bags, making thicker bags, whatever. And they invited me to come speak, and I was really nervous because I thought you know. <laughs> I, the, the woman who invited me, I said, are you guys just going to yell at me? And she said, no, 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 they really want to hear what you have to say. And they actually were great. They actually were very interested, um, and they wanted me to come back, you know, to, to talk to their fellow members in Canada. Um, so I think they, you know, they want to hear, they don't want to have people just yelling at them. They want to sort of hear how can we rethink this, how, what do we need to be think, thinking about doing. Um, I don't think they really want to hear that the plastic bag has to go, but... Um, well, hmm. what actually concerns me about your answer is that you're not getting in, invited by environmental groups. It sounds like. Well, I think Have it's there been pre any. Yeah, some, some, mm -hmm. but not a not a ton. Um, you know, and I I don't know what that is. I'm, I I suspect some of it is that I'm not um, wholeheartedly. I'm not only saying all plastic is bad. I mean, I'm saying, you know, there's good plastic. It has to be used better. Uh huh. Let's, 
okay, that's a little worrying to me that the industry guys are more open to this mixed message of yours than uh, my fellow environmentalists. Maybe, or maybe, you know, they just figure I'm preaching to the choir. I don't know. Uh, was there an issue of there you are talking to the specialists in uh, the plastics industry who you know got their graduate degrees and whatever and are you know really know the stuff backward and forward and you come in and you sort of have to say hi I'm not an engineer I'm a journalist. <laughs> uh, what happens then? It, 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 you've got a fair amount of technical stuff in your book and in your presentation, which I think is wonderful. Um, because that's the level of detail that a lot of these issues have to be hashed out at. But are guys in the industry uh, you know, comfortable guys, with that, or what happens? It, they're okay with that. I mean, guys in the industry know their little thing. Plastics is this huge, sprawling industry, and what is interesting to me is people know their own little section of it. So the guys who you know make plastic film know all about plastic film and don't know anything about medical devices, you know, or, or the issues related to medical devices. That you know, the guys who make bottles know about bottles, but they don't know anything about car parts. Um, there aren't a lot of people who are sort of overall experts. Is there no longer any, like, There's global a, conferences where everybody having to do with plastic gets together? I haven't ever been to one. There is, there is a triennial mm -hmm. national plastics conference that takes place every year, um, the K-Show, every three years, the K-Show, but I actually never made it to that. Here comes some more questions. Thank you. Aha. Rachel Weidinger asks, are 3D printers the rebirth of Yardsley Cousin Plastic Utopia? How could we make it better for this plastic revolution? So there's, you know, zillions of makers out there yeah. who are delighted to have this thing that makes things, and it makes them out of you know, plastic. this usable plastic. You know, I don't know anything about 3D printers. I was supposed to go to um, Nature uh, Noise Bridge. Um, tomorrow night to see the 3D printer makers fair guys. But I think um, Alexander was saying to me that um, they're starting to use biopolymers, that mm -hmm. some of the polymers that are used in these 3D printers actually are not biodegradable or even particularly recyclable things. But there is that same kind of excitement. I mean, designers were thrilled in the 50s over plastics because suddenly they had these materials. They could, you know, I, I write about the development of plastic chairs. I mean, chairs didn't have to be these square, boxy, rectilinear things. You could get these wild, curvy, you know, insane chairs because plastics made it possible. And in fact, um, <laughs> Charles Eames, who was, you know, utterly uh, excited about plastic, also thought it was almost a dangerous material. He said he compared it to the way the Aztecs thought about alcohol, that it was um, something that should only be reserved for the mature audience, uh, aud artist, because, you know, who knew what they would do with it? <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, here's a question. What plastics do you think we will or should be manufacturing in 100 years' time? long now kind of question. So it's been about 100 years that we've had plastics so far. And, and one of the things that's pretty interesting is you, you, you know, we had this huge proliferation of kinds of plastic and then basically proliferation of uses of plastic. Yeah. And now proliferation of volume of plastic, which is going up and up. Um, and these interesting nuances that the bioplastic is not all of that bio and the degradable plastic is not a lot degradable and the recyclable plastic is a mixed bag. Um, that's, by the way, I think one of the messages I get from your research is that uh, there's not simple solutions here. There aren't simple solutions. I don't, I don't know. So I where's mean, the trend going? You know, what's the future of this? 
I can tell you where I hope the trend is going. I, I don't know that it's really going there. But um, again, I mean, 100 years from now, you're not going to see fossil fuel-based plastics for the most part. It's just not sustainable. It's not credible. Every major company is looking at bio-based plastics and then looking at ways to make either wholly new plastics or the same plastic out of renewable um, sources. My hope is that what will be the feedstocks for that are going to be waste, that it's not going to be corn grown to make Barbies. Uh, that's, that's sort of insane, or to make you know picnic forks. Um, I think green chemistry and sort of the incorporation of green chemistry principles and green chemistry departments in major manufacturing companies means that hopefully what you will see is plastics that... Um, you know, take into account the sort of the full life cycle, cradle to grave, cradle to cradle life cycle. I don't know, though. Um, I, I think it's probably likely what you'll see is some of the conventional plastics, maybe mm. some of the plastics we still have, but just, you know, made from uh, a plant source. So it'll be polyethylene, but it'll come from sugar cane, or, you know, if we're lucky, it'll come from, I don't know, ag waste. Is the... You know, I've sort of referred to the guys at the companies that you went to. Are they guys in hold? Are they are they young? You know, we're back to the movie. Are there young <laughs> engineers getting into uh, doing cool new things with plastic? Yeah, there are, and um, I, I, you know, I mean, there's still polymer engineering departments around. I don't know. Uh, it, it's interesting. I don't know how much polymer engineers think about this stuff, though. Um, there was a guy who's head of the polymer engineering department at UMass Lowell who I had talked to several times, and he's very interested in recycling and sort of end-of-life issues, and I sent him a copy of my book before. I sent him a copy of the manuscript, sort of hoping that he would vet it. And I got an email back saying, well, you know, I haven't read it yet, but I don't think that title is very accurate. He was very hostile to criticism. <laughs> um, um, you know, there, there are guys, and, and um, yeah, there are young guys in the, in the field. Um, but, you know, probably, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Actually, I don't know how to compare it. You mentioned green chemistry, and this seems to be the workaround of the chemical-by-chemical hopelessness of testing 80,000 chemicals, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, can you say a little more about green chemistry and how it might especially work in plastic domain? Well, I mean, green chemistry starts from the principle that you're not going to create uh, molecules that are going to be harmful to human health or the environment. So one of the things I think is really exciting in the movement of green chemistry is starting to get the people who make molecules thinking about toxicology, thinking about environmental consequences, sort of thinking long term. And that's happening in places. You know, mm -hmm. Berkeley's got the Center for Green Chemistry, and they are actually working with, um, you know, the biology department and the, the uh, engineering department um, and policy department so that the people who are being trained to create molecules are mm -hmm. being trained to think beyond you know, just, oh, I've got this cool new thing, you know, I've got this cool new molecule, what can I do with it? Um, uh, which just simply wasn't in the thinking of the last generation of uh, industrial chemists. Is there a book as good as yours about green chemistry? Um, if not, will you write it, please? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Elizabeth Grossman has this book, Chasing Molecules, which I think is pretty good. Mm -hmm. um, she, and she's been doing a lot of writing about green chemistry, and I think, I think she's smart and good. Chasing Molecules. Chasing Molecules. Outstanding. Nice title. Uh, a fellow named Dale asks, are you available to speak to our companies? 
Sure. The answer is yes. Um, what are the chances, asked Dale Hover, of us developing a usefully uh, tunable, I imagine, plastic-eating bacteria? I mean, my, I my first know. thought you know, is, okay, that's it for civilization. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be like one of those movies with the little nanobots. Um, well, you know, there are these guys from Yale who came, who found this um, fungus in the Amazon that it turns out that they claim eats polyurethane. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I don't. That's, that's why we've got to keep the tropical rainforest. <laughs> there's things out there that eat the like stuff that. we want to have meat. Um, I, I mean, here I sort of come up with like, why would we want that? Again, this is, these are valuable materials. Do we really want them to go away, or do we want to keep these molecules in circulation as long as possible um, in one form or another? Um, I mean, I guess, you know, you could compost plastics. Are there bacteria that you want to put in the composting pile that would eat plastic? I don't know. I don't know what the unintended consequences of that would be. It seems to me we, we want to make this stuff go away, and it seems to me the way to think about it more is, you know, how do we make use of this stuff in a way that, um, you know, doesn't create problems? How do we keep these molecules in circulation? How do we reduce the amount that we need to make so that we don't have to, you know, one of the criticisms of recycling is um, that so much plastic gets downcycled that it doesn't really dent the need to cre keep creating virgin uh, plastic. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that's the you know, that's the issue more that we need to sort of address and, and think about. Let me try a heretical thought. Um, how much of these molecules is carbon? I don't know the answer, but, you know, carbon is the common, most common backbone. Because looking at the greenhouse gas issue, the, the, the main deal that everybody's trying to figure out is how the hell do we capture and sequester carbon? And the best way is to leave the coal in the damn ground. Um, after that, it's out there, it's in the atmosphere, there's air capture, these, these various kinds of things. Um, one of the peculiarities of plastic is that it is fossil fuel. As you say, there's going to be a boom with the, with the fracking, the shale gas, dropping the price of everything. That's you know, changing the whole ecology of renewable resources and all the rest of it. Um, so that gas, the carbon in that gas, uh, which is less than an oil, but still a fair amount of carbon, is then going into the plastic, which you say has this quality of lasting a very, very, very long time. I think you see where I'm going. This yeah. looks like a hell of a way to sequester carbon. I, you know, I, yeah, possibly, possibly. So then we move on to, uh, okay, everybody use lots of plastic and uh, don't <laughs> it, throw it in the ocean where it's not good for the sea fill. turtles. But get it into the landfill, and then uh, I want to know, is there a way where it can be totally anaerobic down there so it's not turning whatever the, it makes so it doesn't make methane? Can you do that? Can you seal up fresh kills or whatever it is so it's not making methane? Or do you tap it so perfectly that all the methane that does get made comes out in a way that you can reuse it, turn it back into plastic, whatever the hell it is? Um, is there any reason to believe that plastic is a good way to sequester carbon? I don't really expect an yeah, answer. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I, I don't know. Does anybody have an answer to that? <laughs> well, volume is the whole thing. This could be one of these things. I mean, volume is a funny issue. Coming around to that, uh, about one percent or so, three percent of a landfill is uh, 
is residential. And so, you know, all the careful collecting that we do, the recycling, all that kind of stuff, 3% of what actually goes into the landfill. Uh, a lot of it's building materials and industrial this and that and so on. So, uh, you know, a thing I always worry about, frankly, with environmental virtuous behavior of recycling and whatnot is how much of it is um, making us think we're doing something when we're not even touching the level well, of the issues. I mean, the ca you know, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I think that's an interesting question. The calculations that I've seen on comparing recycling to, mm -hmm. um, you know, the continuing making virgin resin, which, you know, if mm -hmm. you just landfilled the stuff and said, okay, we don't need to recycle because we're going to sequester all the old plastic and landfill, mm -hmm. The calculations I've seen comparing Throw recycling... Throw down the closed coal mine <laughs> and seal the mine. The, 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 the comparisons I've seen is that, you know, um, the, the carbon footprint of recycling is significantly lower than making virgin resin. So... How much lower? Do you, I, you know, I don't know offhand. Mm -hmm. um, um, significantly lower. Significantly time. lower. And, mm -hmm. and so, you know, we could throw all the used plastic and landfill and sequester it there, but then if we continue to consume plastic at the same rate, you're back at the same position where you've got to uh, create new stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things you pointed out about Bakelite early on is, uh, boy, it's really solid and lasts a long time. I mean, those old Bakelite yeah. telephones, if you've got one in the closet, uh, you can keep it until it's valuable because it's not <laughs> degrading. Never going anywhere. And as you point out, there's this bridge that is perfectly well built. So, uh, you know, maybe part of the direction to go is, is uh, more and more things made of plastic that uh, earns its forever value, that, you know, you, you are making really durable stuff with this really durable material. Well, you know, one of the things that I think is interesting about the plastics issue is that it really speaks to more than just a material issue. Hmm. I mean, yeah, that would be great. Mm -hmm. um, a, the problem is that we live in a culture that encourages constant consumption and acquisition. So it'd be great if you made a phone that lasts forever, but, you know, we change out our cell phones, what, every 18 months? Um, we, you know, we don't live in a culture that encourages endurance. Um, and, and so one of the things that I think is sort of... <laughs> There's not a lot of volume here. No, 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 I'm good, <laughs> but, but you get what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. Uh, cycling um, out the cars is probably a bigger deal. Um, you know, I mean, um, I, I think when you start to sort of think about plastic, one of the objects that I look at in the book mm -hmm. is the credit card. I use that as the object. The book uses different objects to examine different issues, and I used it as the object. These are all made of PVC, by the way. Um, I forget, is that good or bad? No, PVC, I think, is not a good plastic. Do um, not eat your credit card. <laughs> <laughs> Do not burn your credit card, more to the point. Um, <laughs> Interesting. Um, People burn draft cards and bras and all kinds of things. Nobody burns credit cards that I'm aware of. Um, but, you know, I use the credit card because... Um, people are trying to make credit cards out of biodegradable plastics, which is a questionable <laughs> enterprise for starters. But also, um, it, it, you know, what people find when they start trying to trim their use of plastics is their consumption goes down because you can't consume as much if you say, I'm not going to buy as much plastic. There's a woman in the East Bay, Beth Terry, who's been an anti-plastic blogger for, for about five years now. She has this blog, Plastic Free Life, which is a great source of information if you want to reduce... Plastic Free Life yeah. blog. Um, if, and she has a book coming out in June. I'll plug her book. Mm -hmm. if, you, um, 
if you want to reduce your plastic footprint, she's actually got great hints um, on how to make shampoo out of baking soda. Um, but, you know, she talked about how once she decided to stop acquiring new plastic stuff, she stopped consuming as much um, and found other ways to get the things that she needed. You know, when she needed a screwdriver or a hammer, she could go to the tool lending library. When she, she doesn't own a car, um, you know, some of her stuff is extreme. But I think, mm. I think critiquing plastic does sort of take you into a broader critique of the whole way that we live. And grappling with plastic and the problems that plastic creates does in some way bring you back to having to grapple with how we live. That's interesting. I, I like the plasticine as a, uh, we've had the homogenocene and the anthropocene and the plasticine. Clearly is something that geologists of the future will develop. <laughs> We're in the plasticine layer. Um, I wonder if it'll be one of those things where you know, ever after, it's like once you see vertebrates, then it's vertebrates all the way up. <laughs> uh, once you see plastic, is it plastic all the way up? Or is that a, uh, a just a, a layer that, that, you know, everybody knows, well, that was back in the X centuries, but it was only two centuries yeah. long, and then now they use, mm, Yeah, I don't else. know. I don't know. That'll be the question. I'm guessing, based on the issues that you've spelled out here, that it will be a shallow layer. And if it works out that way, you'll be partly responsible. <laughs> Thank you for doing it. Thank, Thank you. you for coming. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.